0: Amen. Thank you, John. Uh, Would you all turn in your Bibles to Psalm 86? Uh, I'm going to read a portion of Psalm 86. I want to really focus on verse 11, and in particular, the prayer that God would unite our hearts. Um, But let me begin by reading a portion of Psalm 86, 86, verses 10 through 13, if you look at that section with me. It says this, you are great and do wondrous things. You alone Our God, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. If you asked a Jewish person in Jesus' day to fill in the blanks of this sentence, be blank, as your heavenly father is blank it would have been a no-brainer they would have quickly responded be holy as your heavenly father is holy it's all throughout leviticus leviticus 20 26 leviticus 192 leviticus 1144 leviticus 1145 is a well-known old testament saying that the jews would have taken very seriously and and they would have memorized be holy for god is holy And with that in mind, listen to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's clear that Jesus is referencing Leviticus, right, by the structure. So why the change? Did he misspeak? Did he forget the right word? No, he was intentionally changing the phrase in order to teach us something about the kind of holiness that he desires. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees' way of thinking about holiness and righteousness. And he, if he would have said, you know, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy to the Pharisees, they would have said, check, I'm doing that. Because the idea of holiness had so many connotations with external obedience to the law. But Jesus is calling us to a different way of being than that of the Pharisees. He to understand exactly what he's saying, I think we have to understand what he means by perfect when he says that. because when, when we think of perfect when we think of perfect, it, I think it has uh, connotations with sinlessness and moral perfection. And when you look up the definition of perfect, like if you Google it or look it up in the dictionary, the first Definition has a, a, a pretty, falls in line with that way of thinking about it. But there's a second definition in, in our English dictionaries, even. And uh, that second definition is more what Jesus is talking about it's absolute or complete. It's a little bit different way of thinking about perfect. For instance, from a Jewish perspective, my jacket is more perfect than my shirt. Because my shirt is imperfect because it's made of two materials woven together, whereas my jacket is is a whole is holy and complete, right? Because in the Old Testament commandments, they were only allowed to wear garments that were holy and completely made of one kind of material. And so that's more the perfect idea that Jesus is talking about. He uses the Greek word teleos, which means undivided, whole, complete. The idea of integrity, being wholly integrated so that your heart and your outward actions are united in devotion to God. But the Pharisees, they were disintegrated. They were not whole because they were not unified in their heart and in their actions. So that's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. So he kind of uses the word term hypocrite a little differently than we do. Because we, when we say hypocrite, we usually mean someone who says one thing and does another. But the Pharisees were actually practicing what they preached. They were doing the right things uh, outwardly, but inwardly, their hearts were wrong. They were religious and good at being religious, but they didn't love God. Right, Caleb? That's why later in Matthew, Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs because they look nice on the outside, but inside they were full of death. They're like Isaiah says when he describes, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The obedience God desires comes from the heart. Jesus calls us to have hearts that are wholly devoted to God. And, and he, he expounds upon this idea of wholeness or completeness. Once you, once you see what he's saying, it's all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, through some of his most famous teachings, right? In chapter 6, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We become idolatrous and divided when we try to serve both God and the things of the world. But the, the, the person who is whole or perfect serves God with a single minded devotion, fully devoted to Him alone. And Jesus teaches that when we're, when we're not united and not whole, we will experience anxiety. Pastor Tim, um, a few weeks ago, he was preaching from Philippians, a a a sermon titled, The Antidote to Anxiety. And he he said something super striking to me, that, that word for anxiety means to be torn apart. And it's, I think it's in line with what Jesus teaches, that the, therefore, he, he said, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, he's saying your your anxiety is dividing your heart, because He's saying instead be wholly devoted to the kingdom of God and his righteousness, first of all, and trust him as you're doing that. And then you will experience peace and freedom from anxiety because your heart won't be torn in all these different directions. If, but if we're divided and we're devoted to acquiring the things everyone else spends their time seeking after, then we will experience disunity in our hearts which will result in anxiety. That's why our age is so anxious. Jesus is always teaching us that the heart is the issue, not mere external obedience. He longs for our hearts. And this reading, it changes how we understand uh, the illustration in the Sermon on the Mount of the broad and the narrow way. Because Jesus teaches, as we're familiar with, to enter by the narrow gate, uh, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And we tend to think, that you can even see illustrations of this, but we, we tend to think of the broad, that broad, easy way as the way of loose living, and sleeping around, and being gluttonous, and partying, and prodigal spending, and all of that stuff, right? And then we tend to think of that narrow way as the way of piety and purity, But that's not really what Jesus is getting at in the context here, right? Because all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, who's the contrast? It's the Pharisees. In other words, the opposite of what we're supposed to be is the Pharisees, and they would have found themselves on that narrow path the way we commonly think about it, the path of piety and purity in a way that many of us are not living up to, most of us. So if we understand Jesus in context, that broad, easy way that leads to destruction is the way of obeying only in externals. But the narrow way is opening up your whole self to God and obeying from a heart that loves him deeply. Actually becoming a whole person who draws near to God with all that they are. The narrow way is constantly depending on God's grace to actually transform you. Self-righteousness Is the broad way that leads to destruction. It's the divided way. That's why David prays, Lord, unite my heart. We need God to unite our hearts because our hearts are so divided. We have divided loyalties and divided desires. We're torn in, in so many different directions by our affections and our allegiance. They, there are so many ways that our hearts are divided. I've, uh, I've come up with two like broad categories I think they fit into. The first is hypocrisy. The second uh, is incongruence. We've already looked at hypocrisy, right? When Jesus talked about uh, being divided between outward religion and inward rebellion, that kind of division is what the Bible calls hypocrisy. That's the first category. The other category is the incongruence between what we believe or what we say we believe, and how we actually live. I get this word from Eugene Peterson because congruence is the word he used to describe his hopes for his congregation. He said this, The Christian life is the lifelong practice of attending to the details of congruence. Congruence between ends and means. Congruence between what we do and the way we do it. Congruence between what is written in Scripture and our living out what is written. Congruence between a ship and its prow. Congruence between preaching and living. The congruence of the word made flesh in Jesus and what is lived in our flesh. This is what David is praying when he prays, Unite my heart. And we see through the this the parallel parallelism of this passage in that preceding line right above that where he says it he says what's he say teach me your way o lord that i may walk in your truth do you notice the congruence of things learned and things lived teach me your way that i may walk in your truth and when this is not happening we are divided and we're incongruent incongruence is a kind of half belief I'd say, where you could call it the do as I say, not as I do approach, right? Where we, we, believe one, we believe the right thing in one sense, but our lives are not in line with what we say we believe and what we really believe sometimes. James talks about this in his, in his letter when he says that when we pray, but we doubt, we are double-minded and unstable, he says. The Apostle Paul communicates this this complex aspect of our divided hearts when he describes this like like feeling like there's almost two people within himself. Where uh, we desire good, we really do sometimes, but we can't seem to live it out the way we desire. And he, he says this in Romans 7, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, so Paul recognizes this condition, but he also recognizes the cure, the deliverance of Jesus, Christ living in us in such a way that our hearts become whole, sometimes almost in spite of ourselves, And and we experience unity and and congruence inside and out so that we live with Christ and and live an integrated life out of his life within us. David recognizes this too. That's why, after all, this is a prayer, right? He's praying that God would do this, that God would unite our hearts by his grace. Psalm, I mean, if you read through this psalm, which I, I suggest you do, it's saturated with dependence upon God's grace. Verse 3, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all day. Verse 6, give ear, O O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. Verses 15 and 16, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. See, David knows that he is utterly helpless without God, that he would be pitifully half-hearted and shamefully double-minded without the intervention of God's grace in his life. St. Augustine talks about his need for someone other than himself and someone greater than himself to make him whole. And he says to God, without you, what am I to myself? but a guide to my own self-destruction. In other words, he's saying we can't trust ourselves with ourselves. We need our maker to intervene within us and restore us, to unite our hearts and make us whole in order to really live out the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us, which is what? To love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind not with half your heart, but all your heart, with your whole self. This is a complete and unified human being that he's talking about. One who is utterly given to God in love and has him at the center of all that they are. I remember the first day I was uh, introduced to reading the scripture uh, my mentor Casey read two stories with me and Brad and Cody uh, on the bus uh, after a world changers. Uh, where's John? There he is. After a world changers on the bus and, uh, and um, the first story was the book of Jonah and the second one I thought both of these stories were weird at the time, but I, I remember them so vividly reading them that, that, that day. The second, this second story stuck with me. It's the story from 1 Kings chapter 18, where the prophet Elijah, he has this showdown with the priests of Baal. If you remember this story, Baal was this pagan idol who was stealing worship and allegiance from God's people. And, and all the priests and people gather around, and Elijah, God's prophet, says, How long will you go limping? between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. You see what he's saying? He's saying don't be wishy-washy cowards. Pick a side with your whole life. If God is who he says he is, give him your wholehearted allegiance and devotion. Live for him alone or else live for your idol alone. But if you try to get, I love that you use the word limping, right? Because if you try to get your meaning, your worth, your life from anything but the true God, you will be limping all your life. You'll be spiritually crippled by this division of your heart and it will be destructive. And I pray for all of our marginal believers that you will hear this call from Elijah how long will you go limping between two different options? If if whatever is holding you back from taking the leap and being fully committed to Jesus, if that is your Lord, follow that. If yourself is your Lord, follow yourself. But if Jesus is Lord, follow him. Follow him. I know this may seem a bit extreme, uh, That the idea that Jesus demands our whole lives, that he wants to be the unifying center of our very being so that all of our affections and thoughts and emotions and relationships revolve around him, that's intense. It's a little bit stifling. Isn't the gospel supposed to be good news? How is that good news? Well, I believe it is. Um, I want to argue that we really all want and need such a unifying force to our hearts and our lives. And Jesus rescues us from this this destructive but popular myth that happiness comes through unlimited options, which is really tearing us apart. We are torn between what is and what could be. We're torn between what is and what could have been. And so we're we're plagued by anxiety and we're plagued by regret, and we're plagued by unsatisfied desires. Because we're perpetually unsatisfied by things that were never meant to fully satisfy us. So we give up and we move on and we do this over and over until we become weary and worn out. Or we add on until we become restlessly dissolved into a million hungry directions and pursuits. Jesus, in calling to himself... It's good news because he offers a substance and wholeness rather than feeling, I think Bilbo Baggins in Lord of the Rings said it so well when he told Gandalf, I feel thin, sort of stretched like butter scraped over too much bread. Jesus gives us a center and he holds us together rather than being dispersed. And this is good news because we are constantly tugged and pulled in various directions and we ache for a grand unifying vision for our lives. But really the Bible tells us we ache for a grand unifying person because we are made for him. That's why these desires exist within us. Let me illustrate. We, we teach our children to read right? because we know that it will open up a whole world of possibilities and joys for them. But as modern children learn to read, they often neglect their studies to watch TV shows. This is because the desire which uh, learning to read will satisfy in them, it already exists. The core, the essence of that desire already exists within them, and it attaches to other things, Things that seem to the children to be very different from studying the alphabet or vocabulary words. And their, their human impulse to stimulate the imagination is placated through these glowing rectangles when it would be enlarged with greater satisfaction through the ability to read. And I, mean, I know that's arguable, but just say I'm right with that, about that. This, picture, this is a picture of the human heart because we are made for God. So the desires within us, that for God already exists within us, since we were made for him. And these desires are often attached to other lesser things. Our desire for significance and identity is attached to our uh, vocation. Our desire for intimacy and pleasure is attached to sexual relationships. Our desire for happiness and mo- is attached to money and comfort and the gratification of as many desires as we can. But there is one whom these desires were meant for, made for. And he will satisfy them far more completely. We divide our hearts into, these, into hundreds of different places when we're meant to be unified. And we're meant to be integrated and whole. We disintegrate ourselves. So Christian discipleship is this journey toward wholeness. Like the gradual pursuit of of the greater pleasure of reading poetry and literature rather than the quick fix of television. We too are pursuing a greater joy. Like C.S. Lewis says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus calls us, he calls us to the fulfillment of our greatest and most beautiful impulse, the impulse to give ourselves to our beloved it's part of who we are. When you fall in love, you joyfully want to give yourself over to completely to that person. You want to give yourself away utterly and be completely open. This idea of giving your whole self to someone you love is everywhere. Like in that beautiful Elvis Presley song, Can't Help Falling in Love, that's been the soundtrack to countless first dances at weddings, right? Where the chorus that lovers resonate with so much says what? take my hand, take my whole life, too. That's what we want. And I googled giving your heart away and found a scene from Mozart's opera, School for Lovers, and a Matthew McConaughey, Reese Witherspoon movie, Sweet Home Alabama. That's when you know it's a pervasive idea, whenever it's shared by Mozart and Matthew McConaughey, right? We, when you're in love, you want to give your heart away. But of course, there's a problem with that, right? Because such love consistently lets us down. Because human beings let us down. Amen. So on the one hand, there's this transcendent desire to love, to give complete trust, complete devotion. Yet there's the deflating reality of love. And Jesus tells us this is because he is the one that we were meant to truly love. He's the one. That's why this impulse exists. We are made to give our hearts away completely in love, in, in utter trust and devotion to the lover of our souls. And Jesus is the only one who will not let us down, Amen. who can perfectly handle such a responsibility to truly take someone's whole life. And here's the incredible thing. He gives himself completely back to us. he He gives us his whole life. Our infinitely great God utterly commits himself to us for forever. And this frees us to love others in truer and better ways because We already have one upon whom the foundation of our love is laid so that we are not shaken and crushed by the inevitable brokenness of earthly relationships. God is, is the only object of love that demands all of us as an expansion of our hearts rather than a reduction of our hearts. There are many idols which demand all of us. Most of them, in fact, demand more and more of us. But the difference is they are all reductions. They crowd out other things, other relationships, other pursuits. They shrink our hearts and our lives and our loves But God is the only expansion of our hearts. When he calls us wholeheartedly to himself, it expands our hearts and our lives, filling them with light and life and love so that that flows out into every good endeavor so that our relationships are more full and our pursuits are more pure and our lives are everlasting. That's why Psalm 119 says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. We need God to enlarge our hearts because they have grown too small to appreciate the immensity of our Lord. See, the second part of this prayer that David is praying is that he would fear God's name. Unite my heart, he prays, to fear your name. What does that mean? Hebrews 12 says it well. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The character of God ought to fill us with reverence and awe, he says. And the metaphor of fire is amazing because fire is beautiful, right? And it's powerful, and it's a, an incredible blessing to humanity, isn't it? But it's also dangerous if it's approached carelessly or the wrong way. Now, now is a time, I was thinking about this this week, this is a time when we are being tempted to be divided in our fear. There are merchants of bad news feeding on the attention they get through trying to get you to fear man. ...rather than God. And sometimes they're even doing it claiming God's name. Ask yourself when you hear these various messages... ...is this tempting me to fear man... ...or to be anxious in general? If so, it is dividing your heart... ...and it is not what God wants for you. It is not from Him. Fear God alone. But that doesn't mean be afraid of Him. Fear of man is fraught with anxiety... Fear of the Lord results in peace. We can fear the Lord while resting in his love because the Bible tells us, the same Bible that talks about fearing the Lord tells us that perfect love casts out fear. And a deeper understanding of this will lead to a deeper gratitude. That's why David prays right after, unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. If you worship God with reverence and awe, you will be awakened to a deep gratitude for the extraordinary lengths he went to to welcome us in to his life without fear. I was just listening to a talk from a novelist that I really liked, Leif Enger. He wrote the novel Peace Like a River. I recommend it. Check it out. Uh, but he was talking in this talk about how he got really sick recently, really quickly. He, he wasn't sure why. He just couldn't stop shaking. And, and the whites of his eyes turned to deep burgundy. And he, his fever spiked so high that he would see blue flames when he closed his eyes. And he lost so much weight, he looked like skin and bones. And at, uh, then at the last minute, a brilliant specialist diagnosed him. And, and treated him. And he began to get well. And he says this. As I began to get well, the world looked so good. I was so surprised that I'd been able to stay. I was just so happy to be here. It was like my eyesight had changed to where all the colors were so bright. Things just hit so hard. It took nothing to make me laugh or cry. I wept openly during an episode of Deadliest Catch. And people, suddenly I just liked everybody. And then he says that he really hopes that at least part of the shock of this gratitude is going to be permanent. But you see from his story coming so close to to destruction, it made him all the more grateful to be alive. And we are called to fear God with reverential awe because he is powerful beyond imagination and he is full of wrath and hatred toward evil. Which we all appreciate about him. We want him to hate evil, don't we? We want him to hate it enough that he removes it from this world. And he does, and he will. But the very evil he hates is the evil we all contribute to, and the evil that's embedded deep within us. But he has gone to extraordinary lengths to save us from that wrath. Jesus took it upon himself so that we could take shelter in his love. So we don't want to remove the idea of fear of God from the Bible. We just want to balance it with the many other biblical truths which we find right here in this psalm. Like verse 15, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. His grace, his forgiveness and the extraordinary glorious means by which he offers them to us. Through Jesus' death and his resurrection from the dead. Let me read you that Hebrews 12 passage again. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So he says, yes, our God is a consuming fire. And we approach him only with awe and reverence. But we are completely safe and secure. Because Jesus has established for us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen. And therefore, he says, let us be grateful. Thankful to God. And may he unite our hearts in worship of him. May our hearts be united in worship of our awe-inspiringly gracious and merciful God. And in a moment, we will remember his sacrifice that made our relationship possible. Responding to his word through taking communion together before we take the bread and the cup Let's take a moment now of prayer and reflection, worshiping him with awe and gratitude for who Christ is and what he has done for us. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, unite our hearts now. Give us undivided loyalty, undivided love. Make us whole in your son Fill our hearts with awe of who you are and gratitude for what you've done. Teach us your ways that we may walk in your truth. We are utterly dependent on your grace and we ask you for it now as we practice repentance and faith in following you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.